Well, since it's, uh, we're kind of in the midst of the lazy days of summer, I thought it would be appropriate to have a sermon on laziness. The Bible actually is, is quite verbose in dealing with the lazy, the, the sluggard. Now, we don't use sluggard anymore in our language. I think we use terms like couch potato and, and kind of TV hound and slacker and uh, video monster. Uh, but, but the Bible is very clear to come against this sluggardly or lazy behavior. But it's more than that. When we talk about laziness in Scripture, it's not simply kind of slow to get things done. There's more of a habitual sense of laziness. There's more of a, of a lack of sense, a, a failure to understand uh, God's design for us in, in work. And when we see Solomon deal with laziness, you're going to see some of his sarcastic, comedic skill on full display. It, it, some of these are, are very humorous. But, but remember, the context, Solomon is instructing his son to avoid the sluggard, to avoid the one who's lazy, because it would spell ruin for his life. Now, remember, when we're looking at Proverbs, Proverbs are very practical. They're very practical, and they're also very uncomfortable because of how they speak to us on certain issues, and they're not strictly theological. Now, we will speak about the theology that undergirds Proverbs, but they're not strictly theological. They're trying to teach us how to live. They're trying to help us how to live skillfully. We're God's people in God's world that has fallen into sin. How do we then live and navigate where many of the the moral rules and the moral codes of God don't apply. How do we live in those gray areas? And today, it's in the gray area of work and laziness and sluggardliness. And what we're going to look at, number one would be, we want to correctly identify the sluggard. We want to correctly identify, what are the characteristics? What's his lifestyle like? And then what, if we do live in that lifestyle, what's it lead to? What's the end goal? What's the result? And then, and then ultimately, uh, how do we avoid it? I mean, how do we not become like the sluggard? So if you turn with me to Proverbs, we're going to just read this first verse, and then after this, I'll be bouncing around a bit. We'll continue to post the verses on the website, but at least I'll read in Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. This is kind of the classic text of the, uh, of the sluggard. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest in poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So there's a clear injunction to get to work, to not be the sluggard. So how do we identify the sluggard? How do we identify the lazy? Well, the first characteristic I would throw at you would be a procrastinator, right? He's kind of like an old engine. It just has trouble getting started. He'd rather lie there. He'd rather rest. He would rather not do something. And, and Solomon has a cute way of describing this in 2432. Sorry. Uh, where am I? In 2624, he says, As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard turn on his bed. He's like anchored to his bed. He may move, but he goes nowhere. The, the, the slugger doesn't want, he wants to push off till tomorrow. If it can be done tomorrow, that's fine with me. Let's not rush. Let's not move too quick. 
That's what the slugger does. He has trouble getting moving. He'd rather just move this way than get up and do something practical. But the sluggard, when he does do something, is also marked by struggling to complete the task. So Solomon kind of uses this exaggerated humor, and he says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. In other words, he's so lazy that he won't even feed himself. He is so sluggardly that that although he may be hungry, he'll eat later. I'm so tired, I've got to rest. Or, Or another one, whoever is slothful will not roast his game. In other words, he goes out and catches prey, then they don't want to take the time to skin it, cook it, and eat it. And so it's wasted. And this is the nature of the, the sluggard. It's a bunch of, his life is littered with half-completed tasks, with things started, intentions made, but never completing it. He's the one that doesn't put things away, that doesn't return things. He, 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 just, he doesn't complete anything. His life is marked by this, this yeah, I'm going to get to it, and he doesn't. You know, distraction leads to delay, and delay leads to more delay, and that delay ultimately leads to just neglect. So he's a, he's a procrastinator. He needs help. You can't let him do a job. You've got to be after him. You've got to be proud of him. He's not like the ant. The ant needs no ruler. It needs no captain. You don't need to tell the ant what to do. He knows what to do. But the slugger doesn't. He's a procrastinator. But he's also a talker. Loves to talk. It says in 20, um, 1423, he says, In all toil, there is profit. That makes sense. When you work hard, there's going to be profit that comes from it. In all toil, there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The the talker loves to talk about work, and he'll speak about the schemes and the plans that he has, but he just doesn't do them. I, I mean, he'll make promises, he'll speculate, he'll debate, but he doesn't do it. He just sits there. He's kind of like the construction site where the shovel has now become, it was an instrument to dig a hole, now it's like a shelf that he can lean on as he jaws with his friends. I remember working with a guy, he had great plans. He would always tell me what he was planning to do, and I'd get excited and say, that's a great plan, and then he'd never do it. And then later he had another plan, that's a great plan, he'd never do it. And finally I said, stop it with the plans. I mean, I can't encourage you anymore on what you're going to do, I'd rather encourage you on what you've done. So there's the talker. That's that's the sluggard. He wants to talk about things. He doesn't necessarily want to do it. The sluggard also likes to sleep. He likes to sleep. And and we read that in 6, 9. He says, um, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? All those things that my parents were telling me, I didn't know they were in the Bible. It's the craziest thing. But how long will you lie there? Or he says in chapter 20, 13, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Over 12 times in the book of Proverbs, the sluggard is a sleeper. He's a sleeper. Just give me 10 more minutes. I was up late last night. A lot of homework. It's the weekend. It's the summer. I mean, all kinds of excuses why they need to sleep. The sluggard will love to sleep. But the sluggard's also a rationalizer. He or she is ingenious with excuses. Listen to this one in 22.13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now, the context here, of course, is the sluggard doesn't want to work, but he's got to think of a reason as to why he shouldn't work. And so if he says, you know, if someone says, hey, you've got to get to work. He says, hey, there's a lion out there. I could get killed. You don't want me going out there if there's a lion out there. Now, the irony is that there are lions, or there were lions in Israel. Few and far between, but they were there. But the irony is that, is that lions don't hunt during the day in the city. 
That's not generally where they are. They tend to hunt at night. They tend to hunt out in the fields, not in the city. But he's so fanciful, and he is so ingenious with his excuses that he's just trying to justify what his heart already wants to do, which is, I don't want to work. I don't want to work at all. This seems like a legitimate reason. I remember trying this out with a a lacrosse coach in high school. I never liked to run. Lacrosse, you do a lot of running. And so uh, the coach loved to run us. And so I suggested, just it was a suggestion. I did it with respect. I suggested to the coach that we shouldn't run so much. And here's why. Because it was early in the season. We were practicing at night. It was cool. If we pulled a hamstring, it could jeopardize the future of our success this season. Thinking about the team, coach, I think we ought to just bag the running for a while. Well, this is before political correctness. And so what came out of his mouth and the running, we we were in great shape that year. I'll just say that. We were really in great shape. And I didn't have one friend on the team either. But but that's what the sluggard does. He makes excuses. Not only that, but the sluggard's also indifferent. He's indifferent to things. It says in chapter 10, verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, a slack hand is not an immobile hand. It doesn't mean it doesn't move. It just doesn't move very well. In other words, it's, it, it's kind of getting the job done, but not really doing it well. You know, hey, I finished the task, I completed the task, I did what you wanted me to do, but it was kind of done halfway. It's the word sloth, actually, at least in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, means uncaring. You don't care how the job turned out. You're a worker, but you don't care. You got it done, you got the, you got the check off, but, but you didn't do a very good job. That's a mark of the slacker. A mark of the slugger is he just doesn't really ultimately care. But there's, there's just a couple more. Uh, so if you haven't felt a little implicated yet, um, there's the dreamer. The dreamer. Proverbs says this about the dreamer in 12.11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. That makes sense? But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. In other words, the sluggard will often be susceptible to get-rich schemes. This is a quick way to make a buck. They want the rewards. They don't want the work. They're susceptible because they're conceited. They think their ideas always make sense to them. In fact, Solomon warns us about the sluggard in chapter 26. He says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. In other words, the sluggard's convinced. He's easily convinced because he doesn't want to do it. He's going to make up an excuse. He's going to dream up some idea of a quick, rich scheme, and he's going to believe it. This is basically the lotto. I mean, the, the percentages of winners is infinitesimal to the degree of people investing in it. But he's convinced. You can line up seven sensible, sensible people, and they won't be able to convince him because he just doesn't want to do it. He's a dreamer. Now, for those of us that think of the the sluggard as only inactive, the sluggard can be active as well. He just tends to be active in things of insignificance. So you have the the to-do list, and you have that big job that you've got to get done, but, man, that thing is so consuming. Let me go down to the bottom, like, you know, take my trash out, or do this, or do that. We do the lesser things and we avoid the harder things. That is sluggardly behavior. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. Sometimes it's hard to get up the energy, but that is a mark of sluggardly behavior. You constantly don't do the hard things, you do the little things, never getting to the hard things. So when you look at your life, 
What degree of sluggardliness do you find? Now, for a minute, don't look at your teenager. Don't, don't look at your teenager. I mean, because when we deflect a sermon, thinking so-and-so needs to hear this, and so-and-so needs to hear this, you really don't do yourself any service at all. We tend to deflect, when we begin to be convicted, we tend to deflect and move it to someone else, but they really need to hear this. But where do you see it in your own heart? I mean, where do you procrastinate? Where do you talk rather than work? Where do you do an indifferent job? Where do you consider, you know, well, I'm going to just not do this because, oh, I'll get to it later, I'll get to it later. I mean, do you have the projects in the home that are two months old that you haven't completed? I mean, is there some conflict resolution that you need to act on that you just haven't wanted to engage? I mean, is the homework always being done on the night before? I mean, are, are there tasks at hand that just aren't getting done because you just don't feel like it? I mean, th- this is sluggardly behavior, and, and I think we want to convict, we want to stop and say, I've got to make some amends here. I've got to make some changes. But if I just stayed here, I wouldn't be serving you very well. Because while this applies to the physical world of work, that sluggardly behavior also applies to the spiritual world of worship. Worship. So, I mean, what are some of those marks? If I were to bring up some marks of spiritual sluggardliness, could it be disobedience? In other words, you see the command, you understand the command, but I don't want to do it. I'm tired. And that's really hard. I mean, I... God wouldn't hold me accountable for that. He understands the conditions I'm under. You, you know, when you talk to people about their behavior, I know, I know, I know, I know what God says, I know what God says, but this is different. This is different. I'm in a different situation. And, and we begin to justify and rationalize, and we are justifying our disobedience to God no different than we're saying, hey, there's a line in the streets, so I can't do it. Or, or not just that, but when you, look at your, when you look at your growth in Christ, don't look last week, don't look last month, Look at last year and two years and three years. Do you see a lack of growth in your life? And why is it? Well, the Bible's so hard to read. It's different culture, different language. I just don't get anything out of it. So, boom, we close it. It, it, it. Do you hear the excuses? That's kind of a spiritual sluggardliness. You know, I'm, I'm, I know the Bible's the Word of God. I know it's the Word of God, but I, I just, yeah, I tried. Or, or, or the Bible study, yeah, I went there, but eh, it didn't really apply to me that one night. And so, yeah, I got, I, I'm going to go next semester. And, and, and you just hear these excuses in our voices, and it's really, he's talking to us. Or perhaps prayer. You know, prayer is hard work, by the way. I just want to say that right up front. Prayer is hard, and that's why we don't pray. Why? Because we're a bit sluggardly with prayer. And that's why Paul says, be devoted to prayer. I think part of the reason he said be devoted to prayer is because it's so hard. You know, you've got to be devoted. You're going to dig a 10-foot hole. You've got to be devoted to getting to 10 feet. It's not easy. So, so, I mean, look at your life. I mean, look at your marriages, if you're married. Are you investing what it takes to move that marriage to a place that when you and your wife stand before God, you're going to be satisfied? Or you're parenting, engaging your kids. I mean, time and time again, when the kids were younger, we try to have devotions and studies. They will tell you, and I don't mind them telling you, they never liked them that much. I mean, they didn't. I mean, they weren't gripping them. They weren't, maybe one or two might have hit something, but a lot of them were kind of endurance on their part. And I get it, they're young, and I was probably talking above their heads, but the reality of it is that, that you have to persevere through that. And if you don't, isn't that some degree of sluggardliness? 
or conflict resolution. If you have an issue with someone in the church and, and you kind of say, ah, it's so, you know, to get involved and to open the can back up and all the stink comes out and I, I don't think I want the work. That's, that's the same kind of deal. Or, or, or not just that, but the idea of getting into ministry and asking the hard questions of people. That's, it's not, folks, I get it. It's not easy. But I think the scriptures are calling us to be diligent rather than the sluggard, and the sluggard backs away from these difficult ministry experiences. So, so what I want you to do is I just want you to think about it. Does that apply to you? Now, for the Christian here, conviction is a good thing for you. I don't want you to, I don't want anybody, I, I, I hate guilt. I, I don't want you to feel guilty as in, yeah, I should be doing better. I don't want you to go there. My desire is that you would feel a degree of conviction, conviction where you're like, you're right, before God's word, I am standing short. Now for the Christian, conviction is a great thing because it leads us to cherishing the gospel. See, for the Christian, and I don't want to encourage any sort of apathy or ambivalence, I want to encourage a hunger and affections for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the Christian, when you feel the conviction, you go to Jesus Christ and you say, he has paid for my sluggardly sins. He's paid for them all. He has. He died for every single one of them. Every time you've closed the book too early, or you haven't prayed because you're too tired, or you haven't engaged the person because you were too lazy, all those things he paid for. And, and, and that doesn't create an ambivalence to the person who understands the cross. To the person who understands Jesus Christ, you say, thank you, your affections swell. And now you engage the task with diligence fueled by the gospel not fueled by some personal guilt that you've got to do something right before God. So the gospel acts as, it really acts as two things. It acts as a, as a fuel to us to encourage us towards right behavior, but, but it also gives us the grace to do it through the power of the Spirit. So it's not just an example and encouragement to do the right thing. He has done it all. And so it's out of the flow of our love for him and our affections that we do it. So, so those are, that's kind of the identity of the sluggard. You saw all those characteristics, but we have the gospel, and so we turn to that. So what are the consequences now for you? What are the consequences if you want to continue in your sluggardly ways? Well, turn with me, if you will. This is the other passage that I'll look at in chapter 24. Chapter 24, verses 30 to 34. I'll read it. It'll be posted, so you don't have to, uh, yeah, you don't have to worry about writing it down. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw, and I considered it. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So what are the consequences? I always want to warn you of the consequences. Scriptures are very good about that. So if you're going to, okay, we talked about the identity of the sluggard. If you walk in that, what are the consequences? One word I would just give you to remind you of what the consequences will be, and that is loss. You will lose. You will lose, lose, lose. There will be great loss. Loss of wealth, loss of opportunities, loss of, of family dynamic, and loss really of a personal joy and contentment that I think God wants us to have. For example, loss of wealth. If you think about wealth, he says a little slumber, a little sleep. We just read it. 
You fold your hands to rest. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. It'll steal everything you have. It may be the slow deterioration of the house. It may be not looking over your investments. It may not be working hard so you keep your job. Whatever the case is, you begin to lose wealth. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a real practical danger and consequence. But there's loss of opportunities. He says this, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. In other words, he's saying when you're a sluggard, that you're going to be driven by others rather than charting and taking advantage of all the opportunities that you could have. You, you, you will, you know, we have the expression, the early bird gets the worm. That's generally true. The early bird's out there, he's working. He's looking around, he sees the worm first, he gets to eat it. When I was at University of Maryland, I can say that I was an academic slob, sluggard, slacker. You call it whatever you want. I did enough to get by. And my freshman year and my sophomore year, it's no big deal. We're all taking the classes together. They may be getting A's. I may be not. Uh, and, and it just seemed like not a big deal. Well, then come senior, near graduation, job fairs, you start interviewing companies. Guess what? They had a lot of offers. I didn't. They had nice salaries. I didn't. I mean, there's a clear loss of opportunity due to my academic slackeredness. And I didn't see it. If someone, you know, it, it, I know it makes, when you're young, it's hard that B actually follows A. You don't think that. You just think, I'm on A, A's great, A's working for me, great. You don't think of B, C, and D, and E. And that's what was happening. So there's a loss of opportunities, a loss of wealth, there's a loss of opportunities. There's also a loss of relationships. And let me explain this to you a little bit. Because our, our lack of diligence and our sluggardness is going to affect our families in the negative. So he says here, in 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. What's this mean? Well, you can imagine you're farmers, you've planted the fields, the crops are beginning to come in, and the sluggard wants to sleep rather than harvest. It brings shame, it brings embarrassment, but I think there's more at play here. What it's saying is, is he's not out there gathering the food we're going to need in six months when there is no crop. And so it brings insecurity. It brings uncertainty into the home. When there is sluggardly, if a mother or father are not striving and diligent at their task, it causes children, it causes the family dynamic. Why aren't you working harder? It can cause a real ripple in the marital and the family harmony. There's a real danger there. We know that it creates, it creates conflict within work situations. In 1026, he says, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. In other words, I don't want the sluggard. He's not going to complete his task. He's going to do a halfway job. I mean, it's like vinegar to the teeth, the bitterness of it, or smoke to the eyes. You're near a, a, a fire and the smoke, the wind blows the smoke in your eyes and it kind of burns. You don't want that kind of employee. Why? Because you're always after him. You're always moving him. You're always helping him. And you're kind of like, be self-initiating. So it affects our relationships. But last, it ultimately will affect you if you walk in this way. And here's what I mean. He says in chapter 21, he says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous give and do not hold back. What's he saying here? He's saying that the sluggard, wanting rest, never finds rest. He's craving and always wanting more, always being mistreated. 
The sluggard never gets what he wants. He wants rest, but he doesn't get rest. His thirst is never quenched. His hunger is never satisfied. His joy is never experienced. There's joy in hard work. There's joy in completing a task. The sluggard wants rest, and he sits around, but he's not happy, always wanting more. So what's, what's the lesson with these consequences for us? Folks, actions have consequences. God has built into his creative order a cause-effect. If you do this, you get this. Now, not entirely, and I'm not saying that spiritually, but there's a degree of cause and effect, cause and effect in his creation. And when you don't work, like Paul told the Thessalonians, if he doesn't work, don't let him eat. It's simple. There's a cause effect that we have to gain. We have to understand God has built that into the system. Do you realize that when our country was founded, the first few waves of people from England came, they began setting up uh, establishments to live, and they had communal property. This is really America's first experience with communism, actually. And they set up these communal properties, and they all were going to work the fields together, and they were going to all profit from the fields together. Well, shortly after they got there, guess what? Well, the slackers and the sluggers didn't want to do the work, and they didn't do the work. And so there was a percentage of the people doing all the work. So I think it was Governor Bradford, the first governor, said, forget communism, we're going to carve up the plots. Everybody has their own individual plot. Guess what happened? Everybody started working. There weren't any sluggards there because now I'm working my field and it was really the institution of private property property in the sense of I'm going to work my field, I'm going to draw forth from it. And it motivates people. You know, there's, there's actions have consequences. We have to realize that in this life. What you do or what you don't do has a spillover effect that's going to affect. I mean, that's just in all of life. But there's even a greater consequence here. And that is this, that the sluggard is called the fool by God. This is a moral issue. This isn't simply an academic issue. It's not simply a financial issue. It's a moral issue with God. God considers us fools. God has established, that's why he references in chapter 6 the ant. God's saying to us through Solomon, look at the ant, one of the lowest forms of creation, and learn, you, the highest creation, learn from the ant. The ant knows that it's a created being under the sovereign hand of God. And the ant has to work. The ant doesn't need a leader, doesn't need a captain, doesn't need a ruler. It understands its place in the created order, and it goes and works. Do we understand that God has called us to work? Do we understand our place in the created order? Remember I said that Proverbs wasn't a heavily theological book? It's not in terms of what it teaches. But it has this theological foundation, which is called the fear of God. Remember how I talked about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord is not a, oh no, God's going to strike me. That's not it. The fear of the Lord, the word I used was from Charles Bridges, 19th century British pastor. He says, the fear of the Lord is affectionate reverence for God. In other words, if you were a Jewish person reading the Proverbs for the first time, and you heard the fear of the Lord, you wouldn't think fright, you'd think reverence. Holy reverence. Why? Because you could look back in your history and see God delivered us out of Egypt. He saved us from slavery because he's a good and gracious God. And because he is so good and gracious, I love him. 
I have affections for him, and I revere him because of his holiness. So there's an affectionate reverence. Now, we're New Testament Christians. So the New Testament Christian looks back at the greater exodus, which is Jesus Christ and the cross, the gospel. And we see the affection, the love he lavished on us by being called children of God, but we revere him for his holiness. So we want to live within his created order. We want to live in a way that is, I do want to work. I do want to use my gifts and skills for God. So folks, if, if, you, if you're convicted by this in terms of the, your sluggardliness in terms of the physical work that you do or the, the spiritual work that you haven't done, then repent. Let's repent. I, I can tell you honestly, when I was in, um, in fact, it was when I came to faith in Christ. So in high school, I definitely had mastered mediocrity. I had it down cold. And, and I want to share this with my, about myself because I think it's instructive to give hope. Because when Carol and I were talking about this, she says, I don't know that there's a tremendous hope here. What do we do? How do we handle it if we struggle with this? Well, so I, I had mastered mediocrity, and it was kind of funny. My dad looked at me, and he didn't know what happened. He's a, he was an engineer and very skilled and very diligent in what he did. And, and he'd asked me to do things, and I couldn't do them, and I delayed and delayed. And I really was quite, quite lazy. And I remember one time, well, I even... If truth be known, I rearranged my college schedule so I could watch reruns of The Love Boat. Now, now I say that only as a point of, uh, of revealing to you where I was in mediocrity. If you don't know what The Love Boat is, you don't even know, you don't need, even need to go find out. It was absolute powder is what it was. So, anyways... It got so bad, I, my dad asked me to fix something. I'm working with a screwdriver, and uh, he had to show me where that was. I was about to be, <clears throat> Carol and I were dating at the time. And so I'm working with this screwdriver, and I'm working it and working it, and I'm like, Dad, come on, this is really hard. And, and, and then all of a sudden I noticed I had a blister on my hand. I was working so hard. So I remember going up to my dad and saying, Dad, I can't keep going. I think I need to go to the doctor. I've got a blister right here. And I remember he kind of cupped my face in his hands. He says, what happened to you? Who's going to take care of you when I die? He looked at Carol, and I just remember thinking, he just dropped his tool and thought, oh, what have I done? So I get it. And so when I came to faith in Christ, about probably six, nine months later, the first thing we did when we prayed, I said, God, I don't want to be a sluggard. I don't want to be mediocre anymore. I, I've always done it. In school, I do enough to get a B. Just get enough to be above the average, pride-driven, no doubt about it. In sports, never practice. Practice enough to start, but wouldn't practice anymore. I, oh, and I said, God, I don't want to do that with you. We can appeal to God. We can appeal to God that he would give us the spirit, that he would move us. So there is hope in the spirit moving in us from the sluggardly ways. Most of you are diligent, hard workers in the world. I see that but I'm more concerned with the spiritual side of things. So what do we do here? Well, let me just give you some things to consider. The first to consider is just begin observing people. That's what he tells us in Proverbs. He says, observe the ant and be wise, he says. He says, get up and go to the ant. Now, that's the first step of the sluggard. You've got to get up, and then you've got to go to the ant. Observe her ways and be wise. Or he says in 24.32, I saw and considered it, and I looked and received instruction. That's when he walked through the field of the, vine of the uh, sluggard and he saw how bad it was, how overgrown. So folks, pay attention. 
Look right now, consider in your mind someone that you respect their diligence in the marketplace and see what it has resulted in. Versus the indulgent. Look at the diligent versus the indulgent. Then do that spiritually. Look at somebody that has been diligently pursuing God over the years. What is their life like? Do they have troubles? Absolutely. But notice how they get through troubles. Notice how they handle difficulties. It's altogether different, the diligent in the things of God versus the indulgent. Just observe people, because that same pattern you will follow if you don't move towards diligence. But then secondly, would you reconsider the value of work? Work is a good thing. Work has fallen on hard times. We thank God that it's Friday, not that it's Monday. Work is seen as kind of the bane of our existence. We've got to get through it to get to retirement. We've got to work hard enough so that we never have to work again. And we look at work as kind of just this, this really part of the fall. And yet in Genesis 1.28, we read it last week, in Genesis 2.15, God has created us to work. Folks, God works. God is still working right now. God works all the time. And it displays his marvelous wisdom. In Psalm 104, we read, Man goes out to his work and to his labor and to evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So God's work displays his wisdom. Folks, when we work, I really want to, when we work, we are a mask of God, as I said last week. We are displaying God. So we use his gifts, we use his attributes for his glory, and we work, and what happens is we display God to people. We reveal God to people. Our work is also good for alleviating the suffering of other people. Our work also reminds us of the brevity of life. Why? Because you do things over and over. Nothing lasts. Work is a reminder for us. This life is coming to an end. Work is a good thing. It's a good thing. Would you reconsider and engage diligently in work? Engage it hard. Be like the ant. He stores up in summer. This ant, most scholars think, is a harvester ant. So he goes and he collects the seeds of plants, very diligently takes them, breaks them down, puts them, and stores them for later. It's a lot of hard work the ant does. We want to be diligent for the glory of God, not for our glory. And where you do work for your glory, folks, confess that to God and ask him for mercy. But we want to do it for his glory. And, and then, then I would say this, too, to the Christian here. Um, so what you're doing is you're observing, you're reconsidering the value of work, you're engaging diligently in work, and then I would say confession as well. I think if you look at your life, there's going to be times of sluggardliness, both in the, in the physical world of work, in the spiritual world of worship. And uh, you haven't used God's gifts well, which is a form of thievery, because he has given them to you to use. And so what the Christian does is he confesses his sins, he looks to the gospel and he finds hope. And then the last thing I would say is to cherish the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by this. So Jesus, you know, in Proverbs, you don't see the name Jesus. It's a, it's a difficult book to look at and understand Jesus. But, but here's one way to do it. Other than in chapter 8 of Proverbs, you can see Christ pretty clearly there. Uh, but but what Proverbs shows us is this is the wisdom of God that we're called to live out. But we struggle living it out. We fail to live it out. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you see all the wisdom of God lived out perfectly. You see all of the wisdom of Proverbs lived out perfectly. So Jesus would be 
of course, the antithesis of the sluggard. He's the perfect worker. And God gave him a work, not just to be a carpenter. I imagine he did wonderful work as a carpenter. But his perfect work was God giving to Jesus the work of redemption. So God has given to the Son the task, the job, the work to deliver a fallen people and fallen creation back to the Father, to restore all things to God. That was the work that God gave to the Son. Jesus has come to do the work of the Father, and the work is to lay down his life, to take our sins, to die, to be raised, to be seated, and now to bring the church to completion back to God. That's the work of Christ. If you look in Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see that he's seated far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church, whom he fills in fullness in every way. So he is dedicated, he's the head of the church, making sure the church goes back and is with God forever. So he's done the perfect work for us. So now we can enter a rest. The rest that we're invited to is a rest in his work, so that our work doesn't become the piece of idolatry the work that we do doesn't become kind of our identity. The things that we do, that doesn't define who we are. He now defines who we are. And so for the Christian here, we rest. Even though we work, we rest in his finished and completed work. And we strive to enter this rest by faith. We're resting in his work now. That is, in fact, a work. But for the non-Christian here, let me just give a word of warning from the Scripture in, in chapter um, 12, last week I read part of it in Luke, uh, this is about the man who worked and worked, and he saw all of life as work. And he told them a parable saying, the land of the rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Saul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich to God. So for the non-Christian here, to be diligent at work is part of the call here. But to be diligent and to be rich toward God is the greater call. And so for the non-Christian, this is the end. Without Christ, all those goods, all that diligent labor you've laid up and stored for yourself, whose will they be? That's a question you have to ask yourself. I would just, if you're, if you're thinking about what does happen, life after death, is my whole life dedicated to just building bigger barns and bigger storehouses? Then I, or, uh, I would love to speak with you about that, and I would invite you forward even after the service, or speak to someone in this church about what does it mean to store up goods for myself? and not be rich towards God. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll move right to the celebration of communion. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you that you've sent a son who was diligent, who was determined, and he was deliberate in order to accomplish all that you called him to do. And we are thankful that he has both done this work and done it to perfection. Father, would you move upon us through the power of your spirit, bringing about conviction of sin, but also a cherishing of the gospel. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.